Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book 10, chapter 22. Interesting chapter. Pierre runs into Boris, who has ingrained himself in the top echelons of the Russian military. Do you think this will lead to Pierre having more influence in the war? It was interesting that, you know, that happened and then immediately Pierre sort of just gets an audience with Kutuzov, who is, you know, the top, top dog. Uh, there are two camps of thought in the army's high command, Kutuzov, Kutuzov's and Benningson's. Which do you think has more power slash control over the war? And how do you think Pierre and Dolokhov will interact in the coming chapters? So who has more power slash control over the war? Well, Tolstoy would argue that they're just kind of uh, at the mercy of history, you know. But I really love the moves that Kutuzov has made so far. He, he, um, you know, what was it, that line a few chapters ago about when in doubt, do nothing or just wait, you know, wait and see. He's a wait and see kind of guy. Everyone's out there scrambling, trying to figure things out and he's just sort of letting it play out and waiting for opportunities. I think that's pretty smart. Rips to 66 says, once again, I am stuck, struck by the access that the aristocracy has to military engagements. I mean, I guess they are financing a lot of it, but it's a bit mind-boggling to me that Pierre can basically wander around the encampments and have access to Kutuzov, etc., and potentially influence decision-making, though he has no military experience at all. Andre at least has significant experience, but Pierre pretty much just decided on a whim to come to the front lines. Um... Kara Kikar says, I had to Google when reading Jane Austen what buying a commission meant. Yeah, it turns out if you want to be an officer in charge of other people's lives, you just pay some money and there you go. It's truly wild, the privilege of the aristocracy. Twisted Everywhere says, I said this in yesterday's thread, but it's like Pierre is a war tourist. He just shows up, wanders around, meets Kutuzov, wants to be taken around to see the troops on the battlefield. It's crazy. He did um, finance a whole squadron, which cost him a huge chunk of his fortune. So maybe, you know, it is in a way buying a commission. But he's also a huge benefactor uh, of the war, or financier of the war effort. So kind of makes sense. Kara Kikas says, just here to say, despite Dolokhov's proximity to the action, I don't feel like he's going to die. He's too slippery. We've seen him come out unscathed before. And Pythagorean Bean says, Even on the day before the largest battle of the war, the Russians are dividing into factions and are worried about their standings after the battle. I've said it before, but Kutuzov has gotten a raw deal in his service. He was blamed for Austerlitz, and it appears that no matter the outcome of Borodino, he will either be blamed for the loss or have credit stolen for a win. Probably right, but I don't think that would even phase Kutuzov, right? Kutuzov is right. He just rises above. Uh, chapter 23. Oh, it's a short one. It goes like this. For, uh, sorry. From Gorky, Benningson descended the high road to the bridge, which when they had looked at it from the hill, the officer had pointed out as being the centre of our position and where rows of fragrant new-mown hay lay by the riverside. They rode across that bridge into the village of Borodino and thence turned to the left, passing an enormous number of troops and guns and came to a high knoll where militiamen were digging. This was the redoubt 
as yet unnamed, which afterwards became known as the Ravesky Redoubt, or the Knoll Battery, but Pierre paid no special attention to it. He did not know what it would become more sorry, that it would become more memorable to him than any other spot on the plain of Borodino. They then crossed the hollow of the Semenovsk, where the soldiers were dragging away the last fogs sorry, dragging away the last logs from the huts and barns. Then they rode downhill and uphill across a rye field, trodden and beaten down as if by hail following a track freshly made by the artillery over the furrows of the ploughed land and reached some fletches, a kind of entrenchment, which were still being dug. At the fletches, Benningsen stopped and began looking at the Shevardina Redoubt opposite, which had been ours the day before and where several horsemen could be descried. The officers said that either Napoleon or Murat was there, and they all gazed eagerly at this little group of horsemen, Pierre also looked at them trying to guess which of the scarcely discernible figures was Napoleon. At last, those mounted men rode away from the mound and disappeared. Benningsen spoke to a general who approached him and began explaining the whole position of our troops. Pierre listened to him, straining each faculty to understand the essential points of the impending battle, but was mortified to feel that his mental capacity was inadequate for the task. He could make nothing of it. Bennington stopped speaking and noticed that Pierre was listening, suddenly said to him, I don't think this interests you. On the contrary, it's very interesting, replied Pierre, not quite truthfully. From the Fletchers they rode still farther to the left, along a road winding through a thick, low-growing birchwood. In the middle of the wood a brown hare with white feet sprang out, and, scared by the tramp of the many horses, grew so confused that it leaped along the road in front of them for some time, arousing general attention and laughter, and only when several voices shouted at it did it dart to one side and disappear in the thicket. After going through the wood for about a mile and a half, they came out on a glade where troops of Tuchkov's corps were stationed to defend the left flank. Here at the extreme left flank, Benningsen talked a great deal and with much heat, and as it seemed to Pierre gave orders of great military importance, in front of the Tuchov's troops was some high ground not occupied by troops. Benningsen loudly criticised this mistake, saying that it was madness to leave a height which commanded the country round, around unoccupied, and to place troops below it. Some of the generals expressed the same opinion. One in particular declared, with martial heat, that they were put there to be slaughtered. Benningsen, on his own authority, ordered the troops to occupy the high ground. This disposition on the left flank increased Pierre's doubt of his own capacity to understand military matters. Listening to Benningsen and the generals criticising the position of the troops behind the hill, he quite understood them and shared their opinion, but for that very reason he could not understand how the man who put them there behind the hill could have made so gross and palpable a blunder. Pierre did not know that these troops were not, as Benningsen supposed, put there to defend the position, but were in a concealed position as an ambush, so that they should not be seen and might be able to strike an approaching enemy unexpectedly. Benningsen did not know this and moved the troops forward according to his own ideas without mentioning the matter to the commander-in-chief. Oh dear. That sounds like a bit of a miscommunication. Shouldn't the troops know that they have been put there as an ambush and be able to say, 
yes, sir, but, you know, and explain the situation. Oh, well, never mind. That's that chapter for you. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.